Pauline, give me some of your tots. I ate his liver with some fava beans. A nice candy. Combo, pan fry, deep fry, stir fry. Yummy! Hey guys, welcome to another episode of The Cooking Show. I am your host, Bob, and this week we are making an Italian dessert, panna cotta. And before we get into the recipe itself, I do want to go on a little bit of a tangent because the, the recipe is very simple. The, you know, the substance of the episode will be relatively short. This is easy to make. I say that it'll be short. I'm not saying the episode will be short. I might go off on a tangent here and talk for three and a half hours. Who knows? <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to dessert... I feel like there's like a, a paradox with American cuisine in that a common criticism of American cuisine is that there is so much sugar in our diets. Like everything has sugar hidden in it, you know? And that kind of like carries over into our, uh, what would you call it? Would you say it was dessert culture or just the way that we do dessert? It seems like our desserts are fairly limited to certain categories like cake, pie, cookies, candy, you know, various confections. And I mean, honestly, pie is kind of the quintessential American dessert, like you know, Amer as American as apple pie or, you know, a slice of pie in a glass case in a diner. It seems like that's a very American type of dessert. But it seems that when we tend to do desserts, we start with those, those basic foundations of like, well, is this cake? Is it ice cream? Is it a cookie? Like, what is it? And then from that point, we just kind of go overboard, you know, like how many times have you seen like this, you know, oh, I made this awesome uh, dessert. It's a chocolate cake, but there's Snickers bars in the middle of it or something like that. It's like, it's like, it's not necessary to just add more confections to make a bigger, badder dessert. And speaking of bigger and better, that's another thing is the, the portion sizes sometimes get a little bit ridiculous. It's like you might have an establishment that is known for its ice cream. And then it's, you know, top of the line dessert, of course, is uh, an ice cream sundae in a five gallon bucket or something like that, like something ridiculous. And, you know, I don't know if it was um, a month ago, two months ago, did an episode on fundido and flan. And I thought flan was a, a really delightful dessert as, a, you know, it's a custard with a thin caramel sauce, essentially. It's very basic and simple and it's delightful because it's light. I mean, it, you, you have to go into creating a dessert, understanding that it comes at the end of the heating process. And in American cuisine, portion sizes are already so big that by the time you get to dessert, it's always, it's never something that you need to have. You're always just making a decision based on, well, how gluttonous do I want to be? You know, it's like, yes, I've already eaten a week's worth of butter and salt and the rest of this meal, how much sugar do I want to cram down on top of that? And a lot of times the answer is not, you know, whenever the waitress comes over and she's like, mm, did you save room for dessert? It's like, no, of course not. You know, I didn't anticipate how much food was going to be preceding dessert. So now at this point, it's not like you ever get to dessert when you're like, oh, I'm still hungry. So I would like something sweet and delicious at the end of this meal. Now it's kind of like, well, do I want to take the hit? <laughs> do I want to keep this party going? You know, so I feel like the next frontier of American cuisine from a big picture perspective is that of appropriating desserts of the world, you know, and not necessarily creating desserts that are a spectacle, but are, I mean, what they should be is a, a light, 
sweet end to a meal, you know, like a almost like a palate cleanser. You know, I don't know if you're familiar with Alice Waters, but she's considered like the mother of the American slow food movement. And she owned a restaurant in, oh man, is it, I can't remember if it's Los Angeles or San Francisco, but it's called Chez Panisse. And I saw an interview with her probably, oh man, at this point, 10, 15 years ago. And she was talking about how the signature dishes at Chez Panisse were generally just fairly simple dishes from the French countryside or the, you know, the foothills, foothills of the Alps, you know, Tuscan, Tuscan food, very simple, but done very well. And, you know, kind of just not, not deconstructed necessarily, but not jazzed up with a bunch of extra stuff, you know? And she was talking about the dessert course of a tasting menu during some, just one summer when they were able to get a prime selection on Georgia peaches. And of course, you know, these are, it would be considered the best peaches in the world or whatever. But then a marquee restaurant like Chez Panisse would have access to the best of the best of the best. So you're talking about like the most transcendental peaches that had been grown that year. So they got, you know, I don't know how many hundreds of these peaches ordered from whomever in, in Georgia. And the dessert course was one whole Georgia peach on a plate. The simplest thing in the world. And you might think, man, you know, if you're you're paying top dollar for, uh, I mean, I assume Chez Panisse has uh, at least one Michelin star, maybe maybe more, and your dessert is just one whole piece of fruit. It's it seems contradictory, but if you think about going through, you know, a six, ten, twelve course tasting menu, what you want at the end is just like that bright, light, sweet, slightly acidic just a perfect velvety mouthfeel sort of uh, easily digestible uh, confection, uh, quote unquote, putting scare quotes on confection because this is a whole food essentially. And it would just, it would be the quintessentially perfect end to what I would assume would be a a nearly perfect meal. And, uh, you know, this isn't that, this is, this is a traditional confection. Uh, There is a lot of, there is a lot of fat, there's a lot of sugar. But it kind of it kind of lends itself to a responsible portion size, and it the texture, the relative lightness, despite the sweetness, is uh, is delightful. I enjoyed it immensely. <laughs> so, let's get into making panna cotta. Okay, so same thing applies as with everything else. You check out the show notes, and we'll have the really straightforward text recipe as well as like the um uh, the process because this you know one two three four five six this has seven very simple ingredients as the base but then a little bit of a, a little bit of a procedural uh, dance that you need to do to get the the correct the correct texture and get everything to work the right way and there's a little bit of a transformation that takes place it's not difficult but you know you want to you want to follow those. So that'll be in text in the show notes. We, of course, will have the imager album of the step-by-step with photographs so you can see what things look like at certain steps in the process or whatever. Again, another week without a uh, link to a special ingredient or a special piece of equipment. This is super simple. I mean, you can, if you have a bowl or a coffee cup or a spoon, <laughs> you're pretty much covered on the equipment side. And these uh, ingredients are super duper simple. Okay. So uh, first of all, panna cotta, uh, what does that mean? What does it mean, man? It means cooked cream. 
Simplest thing in the world. Cooked cream. Kota or koto, depending on the, what would you call it, the conjugation. I don't remember. I don't remember much from my Latin class in high school. Um, but that just means cooked. I mean, you can have like uh, koto salami. You know, it'd be a salami that isn't a dry cured salami. Isn't like, it'll be poached or or smoked or baked or it will essentially be cooked and that will that will get it to the the final texture and flavor and consistency that you're looking for as opposed to a multi-week or multi-month uh drying process after the fermentation and the curing so kota or koto just means cooked uh pana meaning cream in this case okay and uh the reason i referenced the the flan episode aside from the fact that it was one of three, maybe four, yeah, I guess four or five dessert episodes that I've done is that this is, it's really similar. It has a custardy texture. It has that sort of light, sweet flavor with a background richness. You know, the flan was um, milk and eggs essentially set into a custard with very gentle heat in a hot water bath. Penacotta is um, set with gelatin. There are no eggs involved but you still end up with like a custardy sort of uh, consistency here. So with those seven ingredients that we're going to be using, cold water is one of them because we have to bloom some unflavored gelatin, you know, to dissolve it and, and mix it into our sweetened cream mixture. So we need uh, unflavored gelatin, heavy cream, whole milk, granulated sugar, just a pinch of salt, and a little bit of vanilla extract. Now, of course, you can imbue this with other flavors. Um, perhaps you replace the cold water with cold espresso. That would be interesting. Maybe instead of vanilla extract, you add a, a lemon. Well, no, I don't know about lemon. You'd have to be very careful to, to avoid curdling the cream, but lemon would be a, a decent uh, flavor addition to this. But we're gonna go with just a, a plain vanilla panna cotta, and then we'll talk about just some basic accoutrements that are kind of fun, because one of them was off the charts. That was fantastic. I was really happy with how it turned out. But basically, those are your ingredients, and we can start off by, uh, I mean, you can prep the gelatin, pour your um, water into a bowl, and uh, you'll have the, the measurements for all these ingredients in the show notes. I mean, it's three tablespoons of cold water. Get that into a, a little bowl add a gelatin packet if you can't get the packets you can get those little strips um i don't i i'm not familiar just off the top of my head how many of those strips equal a gelatinizing dose for what ends up being about four cups of liquid four cups three cups for yeah four cups of liquid um, but i used one packet of the unflavored gelatin mix it up with that water and sit it aside let it let it bloom let it just sit and rest it's going to solidify at room temperature on the counter because that's a lot of gelatin and a very small amount of water um, but we will we will remedy that before we go to use it in a saucepan or a pot or something on the stove you want to very gently simmer uh, your dairy which will be the heavy cream and the milk and you can add the salt and the sugar 
And while you're bringing this up to temperature, just just whisk this very gently, continuously. It's sort of it's it's hands on for a little while, and then it's hands off for a very long period of time. <laughs> but the the key to this is that we want to bring the temperature up very slowly and gently, and then we want to bring the temperature back down similarly slowly and gently. So you know, on medium to medium high heat, you can start it there to get you know the first dose of heat into the cream while you're stirring it continuously. And then as you get closer to it coming to a simmer, maybe back that down to medium so that you don't scorch the bottom. You don't want to, you don't want this to foam up and, um, and cook hard, so to speak, like a hard boil or anything like that. You just want to bring it just up to a simmer. And then we're going to move this whole saucepan into an ice bath. So I used a stainless steel mixing bowl that with a bunch of ice water in it. And once all the sugar was dissolved into the dairy products. And once the dairy was just barely at a simmer, uh, I killed the heat and then transferred that whole pan, that saucepan into the ice water bath, just so that the ice water was like kissing the bottom of the pot. And then I whisked that pretty continuously for, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes. Not super fast. We're not trying to make whipped cream or anything like that. But you keep that moving. And what that does is it it helps the convection currents. Um, you think about whenever you heat something up on a stove, the heat enters the product at the bottom of the pan and the stuff heats up and that reduces its density because its molecules start jumping around a lot faster because they become energized with this infrared radiation, aka heat. You know, it's a, it's it's one step off the bottom of the visible light spectrum. That's why it's infrared. It's sub red on the color spectrum. And as it heats up and it becomes energized, these the the molecules spread out because they're moving. So they're vibrating much more quickly. That causes the density to drop of the hotter material, and then it's going to rise to the top, and it's going to displace colder material on the top, which is going to be pushed down to the bottom, which is going to receive new heat. And that's why you get, when you have a boiling pot, you have that roiling action of hot water from the bottom coming to the top, releasing some of that energy as steam or whatever, uh, radi radiant, let's see, there'd be conductive, radiant, uh, another one. I don't know. This isn't a physics podcast, but the point is as you, as you agitate that liquid, um, what you're doing is First, you're creating more surface area on the top so that heat can escape into the atmosphere, into the room, the kitchen that you're working in. Um, but then it also keeps replacing and churning the hot dairy product that's on the top of the pan with the colder dairy on the bottom that's close to the ice water bath. Okay? So you do this until you get it down to roughly room temperature or cool to the touch. I think, you know, I started off, obviously it was in the mid hundreds degrees. And I basically stopped stirring once I got down to like 82, 83. And then I let it sit uh, atop that ice water bath for another 10 or 15 minutes, um, you know, to get down into the room temperature range. Okay. Now at this point, we need to add our gelatin to this dairy, but you will notice at this point that your gelatin is fairly solid in the bowl because it, like I said, it was a lot of gelatin and a very small amount of water. Now, if you mix that up in like a regular bowl, you know, like a salad bowl or a cereal bowl, throw it in the microwave for 10 or 15 seconds and I'll loosen it up considerably. I had mixed mine up in a very small stainless steel mixing bowl. So I just uh, put that on one of my stove burners 
and turn that on to medium until it loosened up and reliquified. And at that point, you stir it into into the dairy and whisk it around for you know, 30 seconds to a minute. You want it to be fully incorporated. It's not so much like when you're making cheese and it's like, okay, now you need to stir the curds for yeah. the rest of your life. <laughs> no, whenever you're mixing this, you just want that, that, that gelatin to be fully integrated with the liquid that it's going to set, okay? Now, at this point, you can very carefully pour this into ramekins, wine glasses, coffee cups. I did it in, I did it in like coffee, coffee cups, tea cups, and whatever those little cups are for ice cream. I don't even remember. They're, it holds about a half a cup of, of stuff, and you put a little scoop of ice cream. They're, they're pretty. They, they look fancy. But I poured them in there. I used a ladle just because I wasn't... One, I wasn't super confident that I would be able to pour from a saucepan into a small you know teacup without it splashing out everywhere. Also, I didn't want there to be a lot of liquid adhered to the bottom of the saucepan because it was sitting in the ice bath. I also didn't want to have to lift the, the saucepan up and wipe the bottom with a with a hand towel and then run the risk of it accumulating uh, moisture from the air, like you know, uh, sweating because there's cold cream and a warm environment or whatever. So I didn't want to adulterate the final product with superfluous water, so I used a ladle, okay? Once you get that all ladled into those containers, you want to refrigerate that for eh, four to six hours. This is the part where it's really hands off for a while. You might even forget about it for a little bit. Get it over into a refrigerator. Uh, I put them, all those cups on like a, a baking sheet and then carried them over to a, a fridge that I have in the barn because who's got room in the regular refrigerator for like six extra cups of panna cotta? Not me. That's for sure. If you do it in ramekins or if you do it in some sort of a form, like there's different ways to serve this. You could serve it in the vessel itself, which is what I was doing. That's why I put them in teacups and, and coffee cups and whatever. But if you do it into a form or a ramekin, you could also invert those and turn them out onto a little pastry plate or something like that. I don't think that's entirely necessary, but you know, as a presentation thing, you might want to do that. Or you might want to give it a try. Maybe do a little bit of both. The point is... You'll chill that for, like I said, four to six hours. And it's going to set to a consistency that is like custard, like sour cream. It's like just barely set, like just barely. It's almost like, like I've had heavy cream from the fancy dairies where it's like you have to squeeze the bottle to get it to come out. It's like that consistency. Okay. Now, speaking of which I should, I'm going to put a plug. You'll see this in, in the pictures in the imager album, but I did specifically use whole milk from a local dairy farm around here, Linden Creek Dairy. This milk is just fantastic. I mean, we it, it's quite a drive for us to get out there and, and stock up once a week or whatever. So if, if we miss a week and we just get, you know, milk from the grocery store, I don't I don't drink that nearly with with the with the gusto and vigor as I do with the Linden Creek whole milk. I mean, I find myself drinking milk at the weirdest times during the day just because it's so good. But de definitely, if you the highest quality cream and milk that you can get, that's where you want to go. And if you're like, I know people listen to this all over the place, but if you are in like Southwestern Pennsylvania near me, Linden Creek does not do cream. They're not set up for it yet. 
but Brunton Dairy in Aliquippa, or it's not it's sort of near Aliquippa. I mean, it's it's Aliquippa, but it's not it's not the Quip proper. They have heavy cream, they have whole milk, they have all that stuff. If you want to venture up there, stock up, and make your panna cotta 100% using local dairy, more power to you, okay? So once that is set, like I said, after four, five, six hours, whatever, it's ready to serve. But we probably want to bedazzle it with something, right? I mean, it's delicious as it is. It's going to taste like mm, melted ice cream jello. I don't know. I don't know if that sounds good to you or not. I mean, it's accurate, but it's it's also pretty delightful. But uh, yeah, as good as it is by itself, what I wanted to do is add a, add that that bright, crisp, fresh flavor of fruit to it. And of course, berries are a natural accoutrement for this type of thing. This type of thing. Can't really talk this late at night. But what I did, started off with some red, red raspberries, put them into a, a saucepan, added, oh, how much? Two thirds of a cup of sugar, one third of a cup of water, and roughly a half to three quarters of a teaspoon of lemon juice, and brought that to a foaming simmer and kind of crushed up all the berries with a fork, stirred them around, massic, ma macerated them, you know, between the sugar, the acid and the lemon juice and the, and the agitation of the fork, you can kind of break those raspberries down into their constituent parts relatively easily. At that point, I strained them through a sieve into like a frying pan, just another vessel basically, cleaned out the, the saucepan, poured the sweetened liquid back into the saucepan and reduced that by roughly 25%. What that created, like I would, in the vernacular, like colloquially, I would say that it was a red raspberry gel, but I didn't use any gelatin. I didn't use a, a setting agent or anything like that. So maybe it was technically more of a syrup, but uh, that was really nice. What I did was I allowed that to cool and when it cooled, it thickened up considerably. So then I heated it up a little bit, make it a little loose, and then with a spoon, very gingerly, put a little splat of that right on top of the set panna cotta. And then into that gel, I put uh, black raspberries and blueberries, a little sprig of mint to be super duper fancy. And then I put the, uh, the coffee cup onto a coffee saucer and uh, just bedazzled that with some uh, pomegranate pips. What are those called? Air rolls. Arils, arils, pomegranate, pomegranate arils, kind of sprinkled them, <laughs> sprinkled them around the, uh, the saucer. And then, and then this is my favorite thing to do. You get yourself a kiwi. It can be a regular kiwi. It can be a golden kiwi, whatever. With a paring knife, you just stab it straight through to the middle to make uh, like a triangular pattern around the outside, kind of like a, like a perforation, you know, a triangle, 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 up, down, up, down, not a triangle. You're not putting the bottom, you know, it's, it's the, the two, it's the vertices, you know, the vertical vertices and not the horizontal one at the bottom, but you do that all the way around. You pop it apart. It looks like, uh, I don't know, lamprey teeth, which probably doesn't actually illustrate this to you any better than just saying it's jagged, <laughs> but, uh, you know, Plop one of those down there next to the plate so that once you finish your, 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 your decadent, sweet, creamy deliciousness, then you can go ahead and scoop out some of that, some of that kiwi fruit. And that was uh, a nice, a nice little palate cleanser for the palate cleanser, if you will. 
So uh, that's basically it. Now, also, oh, I guess I did on a couple of these, I dusted the top with some cocoa powder. You could do a really finely ground espresso powder, espresso and cocoa. You could do, I mean, you could do a little bit of cinnamon. You could, yeah, you could do cinnamon and nutmeg. You could do pumpkin spice. A pumpkin spice dusting across the top would be really fun. But uh, yeah, I mean, however you decide to jazz up your panna cotta, that is up to you. But the main thing is, you know, sticking to high quality basic ingredients and uh, creating something that has a really nice mouthfeel, a really nice flavor, and then it'll take other flavors fantastically. Lemon zest, lime zest, you know, strawberries, whatever you want to do. Just don't, you know, don't layer it between 37 Snickers bars. You know, come on. <laughs> All right, so that's uh, panna cotta this week. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see what we're eating next week, all right?